Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name's Karen Henson, and I'm here with my co-host, Nathan Wagner. What's up? What's up? What's happening? Oh, you know, just trying to put out some stuff during COVID. You know, I just ate um, peanut butter, and I'm starting to think that that is a bad pre-podcast snack. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on with you, Karen? (laughs) You want to share it with the world? (laughs) I've been I've been in quarantine too long. <laughs> okay, so today we are going to be having a conversation with Dr. Aberbeck from Trinity, also known as TEDS, also known as Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Good, good. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about the book of Genesis. It's part of our podcast series as we're working through the whole Bible. And we're at the beginning, so we hope you all enjoy. We are pumped today to have on the phone with us all the way from Deerfield, Illinois, which is just north of Chicago, Dr. Dick Averbeck, who is the director of the doctoral program at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, otherwise known as TEDS. He's also a professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages there at TEDS and is kind of a uh, Genesis Yoda if we're going to like something like that. Yeah. So (laughs) we are going to continue our really, really long project of podcasting the entire Bible. (laughs) And today, uh, actually today and next week and the next, we're going to be talking about the book of Genesis. So Dick, hey, welcome to the podcast, man. We're really grateful for your time. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to doing this. Spend a few minutes and just talk to us about how did you get involved in biblical studies? How did Genesis become a emphasis for you? I mean, I know you have the whole Semitic background, but help our audience who may not even know what that is, just kind of introduce that to them and let them know how you got into this field. Yeah, I grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin and uh, went to a university River Falls, uh, commonly called Moo Yu. I was a dairy farmer. (laughs) And uh, there is where I first heard the gospel. And I immediately knew that 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 was what I really needed. And I came to the Lord and began to to grow. And along the way, in that first few months, I heard that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. So I assume Christians learn Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> so I found a school that taught Greek and Hebrew, and I went there. And that's, that's kind of the way my life has been. Just find out and go do it. Yeah, nice. It's <laughs> awesome. And so I have found my wife there at the school that I went to, Calvary Bible College in Kansas City. Studied Hebrew and Greek there, and then went on to Grace Theological Seminary. And uh, along the way, I, I was going to be first a pastor and then a missionary. But mm. at a certain point, the Lord, and I remember where I was, just impressed me that maybe he wants me to help the church with the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. And so from there, I went on to Dropsy College. No, it's not a disease. It's a school uh, in, in Philadelphia. Uh, Dropsy College, a Jewish school for PhD work. Nice. And a lot of my professors were PhDs, but also rabbis. And so it was a very interesting context to be studying the Old Testament Hebrew Bible and all the languages of the ancient world in relationship to it and so on. And that's how I got into this. And Mm -hmm. as soon as I got done with my classwork there, I went back to teach where I had gone to seminary and one thing led to the other. There you go. You know, a lot of times people think of Christian ministry 
as in a church mm-hmm. pastor or you know, children's ministry is very narrow. But mm-hmm. I mean, one Christian ministry is wherever Christians are doing ministry, <laughs> like where like right. workplace is a yeah. huge part of it. But then also the branch or arm of the church that is uh, academic ministry. And uh, so we're grateful for guys like you who the Lord has impressed to stay in the academy and and help people with the Old Testament. Yes. Thank you so much. Because, I mean, it's not like the church needs help with the Old Testament, right? Right. No. uh, I'm not even going to address that comment. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, cool. So, hey, the book of Genesis is such an interesting topic because, well, I can just share my own story just for a few seconds. As a child, I pick up the Bible and you open the book. And I mean, one of probably one of the most well-known phrases in the world maybe is in the beginning. And so you read this and then, but by chapter six, (laughs) um, sin has entered the world. People are killing each other. There's all kinds of idolatry going on and and the lord is wiping out the face of the earth and mm-hmm. and so you're just like wait wait a minute is this the bible <laughs> what <happened>? is this <laughs> um, yeah. and i think too there's also a lot of just like oversimplification of assumptions that people make about how we got genesis how it was uh, originally written how it was compiled how it was transmitted i remember talking to somebody one time who literally thought that Moses in like one sitting just sat down and wrote every single word of Genesis. And we've had that exact form, you know, for 2,400 years. Like you, you said, know. it's that oversimplification. And that's what they've been taught that Moses wrote it. Therefore, that yeah. must have been how yeah, it was. Because in yeah. their minds, it's yeah. like, yeah. well. Yeah, that's a common misunderstanding. Totally. Yeah. Common. So help us with that. I mean, what are the various views on authorship? What's an evangelical view of authorship and how does that compare with other views that are out there? Okay, yeah. Well, first, Moses is important in this discussion because essentially, uh, from an evangelical point of view, conservative evangelical point of view, Moses essentially wrote the Pentateuch. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot more that goes on with that, and and that's why we say the word essentially. And the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Yeah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Perfect. Right. But Moses, uh, with regard to Genesis specifically, according to the Bible, Moses lived centuries after Genesis. Mm. Therefore, we talk about Moses being the author, but he's also using traditions and background material and so on in order to compose specifically the book of Genesis. Now, starting in Exodus, of course, that's when he's alive. And so the rest of the Pentateuch is material that happened within the life of Moses. But the essential conservative evangelical approach, and this is the approach that I take, is that it is essentially mosaic as authorship or source. You know what I mean? It came from him. It says so much, and God said to Moses, or things like this. And so there's a lot of textual material that makes that the point. So you use the word essentially a lot when you're explaining that. It was essentially Uh Moses. So why are you picking out that word? Why is it not just Moses? What do you mean by that? Well, for example, at the end of Deuteronomy, we have the record of Moses' death. Yeah. And it tells us that he never came back to the camp. So how would Mm -hmm. we have the story? Mm -hmm. And then it says at the very end... 
of that part. Verse 10 of Deuteronomy 34, since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Well, that's written from a later point of view. Moses didn't write that. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about that. On the other hand, there are places where the text specifically says he wrote this, like the the Book of the Covenant in uh, Exodus 21 through 23. He wrote that down according to Exodus 24. At the end of Deuteronomy, it talks about him writing down what was said in the book of Deuteronomy, so on. But you don't always get a notice that says that, but that's the general tenor of the whole material in that regard. So there's a lot of people in biblical studies, of course, that are not of that opinion. And a lot of, you know, across the world, there are a lot of scholars who would say there never was even a Moses at all and things like this. And so we have various theories about how then did it get composed. And so we have like things from Bellhausen back in the 1800s about what we call the JEDP theory, different authors writing different parts, and then it's redacted together and various things like that. So it's filled with all sorts of speculation. And there is a sense in which we have to talk about things being put together, it wasn't all written at the same time. The Bible doesn't even present it that way. And so one of the problems is sometimes amongst us, there are those who think that God just kind of plopped the whole Bible down at one time. (laughs) And yet the the Bible tells us about the whole historical progression of the development Mm -hmm. of the canon. So if it started with Moses and he plopped it all down at one time, We'd be Samaritans. We wouldn't believe in anything but the Pentateuch. Yeah, right. And so the idea is that there's a progression, development of the text through the Old Testament period. And that means, of course, there has to be copying of the text. Mm-hmm. If it's written over, say, a thousand-year period of time, you're going to have to be copying that text while it's still being produced, too. Mm-hmm. The previous parts that have already been written have to be copied, and then they have to be attached, and all of this kind of thing to the, to what's coming along. So there's rewriting. They didn't have copy machines, so they had to rewrite them, and they could update and various things like that along the way. So when I say essential, I talk about, yeah, I think it's basically mosaic, but there are things that reflect the ongoing progress of the development of the canon in the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. For example, just a small one, uh, Genesis 14 There's this attack from the kings of the north, and Abraham took his uh, troops, and he went and delivered the people from these kings. And it says in verse 14, in Genesis 14, verse 14, when Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, that his lot was with them, he let out his trained men born in his house, 318 men, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Well, we know that Dan was not named Dan until Judges 18. It tells us that. (laughs) So therefore, (laughs) that had to be updated. You know what I mean? It's kind of like the back to the future kind of thing. You know, where's Kennedy Boulevard? You know, (laughs) things like this. (laughs) And so it's that kind of thing. And that happens through the text. And some of them we can recognize very easily. And others, we don't necessarily recognize it easily. So there's a compositional process that grew through the Old Testament period so that we have the whole canon right around 400 B.C., which is about 800 to 1,000 years after Moses. 
So what I'm hearing you say is this was a messy process. Oh, yeah. But that shouldn't surprise us because as far as I know, there's no literary document from the ancient world that literally just plopped down in somebody's lap. I mean, this was standard document transmission practices among scribal schools. I'm also hearing you say that essentially mosaic means that there is a kind of like a, a stream of tradition mm-hmm. that's mosaic, mm-hmm. but as it goes, that editors have their hands on it, names are being updated, but it's not like uh, we have any evidence that shows that instead of going to Sinai, Moses went to Sudan or right. something. Like there's no essential difference in the tradition that we have, but there is evidence of editors organizing it, updating names, statements like you said, where they call it this, but that didn't show up until much later. Yeah, this is a normal part of transmissional process in the ancient world. And that's very important. Now with other documents, we have, you know, like clay tablets and so on that we've dug up from those times. So we can read those texts and work with them. That's an area I work as well. And Mm -hmm. In these kind of things, they're from the actual days in which they were written. Right. Okay. But we even see other documents where we can trace the development of those, development of documents like the Gilgamesh epic through time and see different renditions and so on. But it carries the story along. It's right. still the same story. Right, right. But, of course, in the biblical uh, material, one of the great things that we find out from the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit guided them along. Right. Good in the whole process. So as evangelicals, in order to affirm inspiration, we're saying it's not just the statement in uh, the Pentateuch, the Lord said to Moses, that is inspiration, but also the process of transmission is also inspiration. Yes, the ongoing process as a whole is what we have to look at in order to really understand writing a text that is dated, different parts of it come from over like 800 to 1,000 year period of time. I mean, that's a cumulative process. Yep. So help us with the, the theory you mentioned earlier, which is, like you said, gained prominence in the middle to the end of the 19th century and then has really been, I think, dominant. It definitely was dominant when I was in seminary 20 years ago, but the whole, uh, what's known as the documentary hypothesis or the JEDP. Unpack that for us for a minute because I'm pretty sure most of our audience has no idea what that is, but they may encounter people who are talking about that where they're saying that Moses either was, this was just attributed to him or he never existed. And these various different traditions kind of blended into one and they just called it Moses. Help us understand, like, where do people come up with that? Well, for example, we have different names of God uh, in the Bible. One is sometimes translated Jehovah, but really Yahweh is correct. But in German, that's a J, okay, <laughs> the, the Yod. Right. <laughs> and so, and so but, but we call that the Jehovahist, okay, or the, or the Yahwist. And so to simplify it, if a text uses that name, you want to assign it to the author that used that name. Mm-hmm. And then if there's another name, Elohim, which means God, okay, so usually Yahweh, Jehovah's translated Lord with capital letters in the Bible, And then God is a different word, that's Elohim, and that's a different author would have used that name. Mm. Which is a more generic name for God. Right, exactly. So Yahweh is the the God of Israel, okay? That's like his covenant name. 
with Israel. So there's a lot of that kind of thing going on in this theory about this. This goes way back to the 1700s, mm-hmm. okay, uh, AD, where this theory was developed. And it's been prominent down through the centuries and is still alive today. But there are other theories about development of the canon, too, which start really not with documents like that, like the Yahweh's document and the Elohist document or anything like that, but they start with, usually this starts with Herman Gunkel at the beginning of the 20th century, where he talked about oral traditions and how they built up over time, and that get collected into the cycles of tradition, and that's a whole different set of ways that this is talked about in terms of how we would have gotten the Bible. In the field of Old Testament studies, in the academic world, these are all discussed and lots of disagreements between scholars about how all this worked and so on. So it's just a reality of what we deal with in the academic world of Mm. Old Testament studies today. But I think the thing we are emphasizing here is that in order to arrive at some of these things, there's a lot of theories, a lot of speculation. We just, there's not a ton of evidence that shows that. It's a lot of trying to deduce things from certain texts. But I think what we want to emphasize is the what the text claims about itself is that it's mosaic. Yes. Yep. That's, I think, the best way to think about it. And yes, in the world of academic study, no one should have an idea that there's some kind of scholarly consensus about this. Yeah, right. There's all sorts right. of pushing back and forth. It's not... And a lot of circular argument goes on mm. and so on. Now, these are very smart people, but they're using theories of compilation that don't correspond to what the text says about itself. Right. And we're going, hey, the yeah. Pentateuch attributes authorship to Moses. Yeah. And you're saying yeah. that the Pentateuch is essentially mosaic, even though we recognize that it's a messy process. There's editors, names have been updated, that sort of thing. But the essential message of the Pentateuch comes from or at least is attributed to Moses. Yes. And that that shouldn't scare us, right? Because even sometimes when we have that, oh, it's essentially Moses, not 100% people will freak out. It's like, no, settle. This process, like you said, was messy. Yeah, they have a real reductionistic view of this whole thing, which is not realistic. Like the process is not even claiming that for itself. Right. So that's helpful to remember. It's just important to recognize the historical process because God presents it that way itself in the text. Joshua 24 says as Joshua added to the book of the law. You know what I mean? You know, things like this. So there's a lot of things like that in the text that actually make this clear. And the Lord or Yahweh the whole time is orchestrating the whole process. Yes. Second uh, Peter 1 is a good place to go mm-hmm. for that. That's good, yeah. Various other places. And of course, Second Timothy 3, uh, 16 and 17. And places like in Matthew 5 where Jesus talks about not one jot or tittle shall pass away from the law or the prophets, you know, until all is fulfilled and so on. Yeah, that's really helpful to get a gun understanding of, hey, this is mostly Moses, <laughs> essentially, essentially Moses, essentially Moses. <laughs> essentially Moses. I, I say it substantially, I say it substantially mosaic. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's, substantially yes. mosaic. <laughs> It's good to remember that the process was really messy. It was over time. It was a a lot of people. And so it's not going to be as clean as our brains would like it to be. Yeah. And and yet the Holy Spirit was superintending the whole process. Mm. Oh, so true. The Holy Spirit's really used to messy. (laughs) 
Yeah. If he's going to deal with us, he sure is. Yeah, yeah. That, is, that is not a new concept for That's the fun. Holy Spirit. So, yeah. so yeah, then help right. us understand what is the genre of the book of Genesis? So we know from studying other books or even in our, a previous podcast, we talked about the book of Revelation. That's apocalyptic. That influences how you read and understand the book. So what is the genre of Genesis and why does that matter to us? In order to talk about the genre of Genesis, you have to talk about really multiple genres. Mm -hmm. But where I would start is with the patriarchal narratives. And the reason I would do that is because even if you start in Genesis 2, say verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. There's this Hebrew word toledot, meaning generations, that's used and kind of shapes the whole book. It starts in chapter 2, verse 4, and then chapter 5, verse 1, it talks about this is the scroll of the generations of Adam. Now, sometimes generations is translated accounts or, or stories or whatever, but often it's attached to genealogies, and then sometimes it's attached to sections of stories. But it runs through the book, uh, occurs 11 times, and uh, it kind of shapes the book. Now, the reason that's important is because what happens in the book of Genesis, starting, and I want to start with the patriarchal narratives in Genesis 12, what happens is that you actually have the stories hung on the genealogies of the people. So that you'll have this genealogy at the beginning of the patriarchal narratives in Genesis 11, verse 26. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Avram, Nahor, and Aran. And then you go on and you have first the Abraham stories. And then you have the Isaac stories. And then you have the Jacob stories, and so on. And these are different cycles, but this Toledot, this generations formula is very important because it reflects the very nature of who the patriarchs were. The patriarchs were what we call enclosed nomadic pastoralists. Boy, you're going to have to unpack that word for us. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hang on. When you no say something here, right? like that, you're just going to need to define it. Yeah, yeah. And, this means that they're the kind of nomads, they don't travel like hundreds and thousands of miles to, for trade or anything. They're pastoralists, and they, they live in tents. And what they do is they live in between the different cities in the area. Mm. They live in tents, and their herds and flocks roam about for pasture and mm. so on. And you have the herdsmen and, the, and the, the shepherds and so on. But the tent might stay in one place for quite a long time, and then the the herds and, and flocks roam to, to find pasture. And so sometimes the, the flocks are quite a long way from where the tent is, but they're, they're connected to the urban centers as well. And we can see this in the book of Genesis that this is who Abraham was. Mm. He was an enclosed nomadic pastoralist. He, he lived in the tents, he had relationships with the cities around him, like Hebron and Gerar and various other places, uh, Shechem and so on. But he was what you might call an enclosed nomadic sheik, if you know that word. Yeah. It's a tribal sheik leader who actually was to be taken very seriously. They're very strong. In fact, in that Genesis 14 passage I read before, he had 318 men yeah. who he could command in battle. Yeah. Uh, these were not people army. to mess with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they were hardy people. They were out in the wilderness a lot with the flocks and so on. And so 
They had a lot of political relations with the urban centers in the regions. And so these people now, however, are the kind of people that the way they do history is not through kings and so on and so forth. They don't have kings. They do it through genealogical history. Mm -hmm. They have their own genealogy of their family and their tribe and their clan. Mm -hmm. And this is how they thought about their history and their stories fit into the genealogies. Got it. So if you go through the genealogy and you're with one particular group of people, one particular person in that genealogy might be really important to that group. So now you tell the stories. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is the genealogies drive the narrative, but you may go through, say, eight to 10 generations before you get to the next like most important guy that you're going to tell a story about. That's right. Yep. And this was a kind of a common way that they carried the traditions down of what was going on in their larger clan family. And this was all carried uh, orally, but in a very controlled situation because the people knew the stories too. Right. That's a really fascinating point. So I'm going to just pause you there and let's camp out there for a minute. Talk to us about the oral tradition, how it would have developed and been passed down. And talk to us too about the reliability of that. Because I think most people, when they hear of oral tradition, they think of something like the telephone game <laughs> or something like that where yeah. it's like, Throw well, we can't up. really we can't really trust yeah. that because they're going to mess the story up, which is a total mischaracterization of how it actually was. So just spend a few minutes and unpack that for us. Yeah. In fact, there's even been recent ethnographic anthropological work on, for example, the, the Bedouin in Jordan mm -hmm. who are kind of the descendants of this whole way of life. Yeah. They live in tents and they have their flocks and all of that. But these people are transitioning to becoming part of a state, too, in Jordan. Right. And so what we've learned is that they pass these stories down, and he gives records. This person, Andrew Shryock, who wrote this one book on this, gives records of stories that were written down over 200 years ago and then how they're still told in the oral context the same way. Mm. It's because, you know, previously they had been written down by some missionary or something, and now you read it, and it's the same as what's said orally, carried down by the people who weren't even doing writing. Mm. Right. And so it's the kind of thing where we know that this was a common feature of the ancient Near East. We have other texts besides the Bible that reflect this. Mm -hmm from the time of Abraham and on down. So it's very important to, to recognize that this is the kind of genre of material that we have. It's genealogical history. Mm. And that's carrying these stories, and they're, they're hung on the framework of that genealogical structure. Even today, when someone asks one of these Bedouin sheiks to tell about how they became sheik, they start with this long genealogy, yeah, go through yeah. a bunch of generations, <laughs> yeah. and the guy says, no, I want the story about it. No, 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 you got to start with the genealogy. He's like, yeah, you I'm telling you the story. Yeah. In the <laughs> beginning. Yeah, that, that's the core of the story. You know what I mean? And they all know it by heart. Yeah, yeah. One, one, once upon a time, there was this really old dude. <laughs> <laughs> all right. No, yeah. they, they carry this down, and it's very... Mm -hmm very carefully monitored because it's done within the group 
that are used to hearing the stories, right. so they know if somebody makes a mistake. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's the kind of thing where there's an oral tradition is a big deal, and I think it's a big part of the background and the nature of the genre of Genesis, so that when you get down to the time of Moses, a couple of centuries later, these have been carried down by the tribes that developed out of Abraham, and that then becomes the background for Moses putting this together. Yeah. So there's a very strong oral tradition that Moses is drawing from. It's not like there's any evidence that we have that people just like make stuff up and call no. it a tradition. Put their own flavor in it. Yeah, right. No, no. The problem is that tradition for us often means fiction. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is tradition for these cultures is nothing like fiction at all. It's, it's central to who they are as a people. Yeah, it's it's a very much our, their identity. Yeah, it's good. And so you just don't mess with it. It's interesting that they even resist writing it down mm-hmm. because if you write it down, you don't make it flexible for the group you're talking to. That's good. You then make it in stone. And so the only reason they have been writing it down is because they're trying to make a nation, not just tribal groups. Mm-hmm. And so they write it down to try to sort things out, but it's something that's really resisted. That's why I think that these uh, stories were not written down until Israel was becoming a nation. Interesting. In such a way that they would need to kind of unify themselves, but they have all their tribal groups already going on, and that's clear from the text itself. And the result is that all this has to be brought together somehow to unify a nation. And that's a big part of the whole process of how I think the book of Genesis initially got written by Moses, but I think it then kept on developing because of this ongoing work Mm -hmm. and the Holy Spirit guiding it along. And that's encouraging too, to just be able to reflect and know that this oral tradition is very reliable and even Mm -hmm. moving forward, knowing, hey, Moses didn't necessarily write it down because people needed that in order to remember the stories. He wasn't writing it down for them, but Mm -hmm. it was out of this nation that was developing and taking form that they're going to put these things down uh, into stone. And yeah. that's really helpful. I think it's interesting, too, that when we think about the ancient world and textual transmission and Genesis in its final form, we think a lot of times that the ancient people, that reading this text was a huge deal. And that's actually very n- much not the case. Yeah. And yeah. so talk to us about, like, you have a nomadic You've used the word Bedouin a couple of times, which I think some of our mm-hmm. listeners who have been to Israel and Jordan kind of, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's a whole Bedouin like tourist thing you can go, you know, sure. uh-huh. do these things. Yeah. But, uh, but the Bedouin people in the ancient Near East, what would this book have been for them? I know you said they're trying to give an identity to a state, but if I'm in the ancient Near East and I am in between the Exodus and the kingdoms during maybe the period mm-hmm. of the judges... What does Genesis mean to me as a person in that land in that time? Well, it's the uh, Genesis is like the foundation of their uh, identity from their forefathers, and it goes back goes back to Genesis twelve. But it also pushes this Toledot formula that I've been talking about, this generation formula, back into the primeval narratives, because that's part of the history of Israel in terms of the whole world. Mm-hmm and not just their family and clan and tribe groups, but the whole world of the ancient world that they knew. Mm. And so 
what it does is it lays a foundation for understanding who they are and they can function out of that. They can have relationship out of that. Mm. And so it's a really a key to them being together and to uh, committing to one another. So it lays the foundation for an entire people group to know who they are, have a foundation to build off of, to interact mm-hmm. with other people around them who are mm-hmm. in some ways the same and other ways different. Mm-hmm. Gives them a, uh, a distinction, I think is a good way to to maybe uh-huh. think about it in the ancient Near East when there's actually quite a bit of activity going on. Oh, yeah. Um, they're grounded in this toledot, this this generational narrative of, yeah. no, this is who we are. Yeah. Um, and primarily, this is who God is. Yeah. So yeah. we're going to keep talking to Dr. Averbeck. Next week, you'll definitely want to tune into it because we're going to tackle Genesis 1 to 11, which is... <laughs> it's easy stuff, <laughs> yeah, <that's> people. A... <laughs> uh, but, we got this. But uh, Dick, thanks for being with us this week and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next week. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast with Dr. Richard Averbeck. If you like what you heard, then go subscribe and share this with your friends. Shoot it out to everybody. Be like, hey, this is super helpful. I mean, if you think it's helpful. And uh, leave us a comment. Leave us a rating on iTunes, all that good stuff. And if you want to chat with us, then shoot us an email at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Peace. You know, everybody addresses Nathan in the emails. I would like some emails too. (laughs) Bye.